Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vista. Is, are, the, are the rumors true? Is it snowing outside? I can't believe you all made it here. Usually when a, a snowflake falls in Texas, everybody just bunkers down for the next few months. So I'm so impressed that you braved the conditions and you made it. May the Lord bless you for your endeavors. If we haven't met before, uh, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. Uh, and if you've been at Vista for any amount of time, you know that we try to practice a pretty, pretty balanced mix in our preaching, right? by which I mean sometimes we do, uh, you know, sometimes we'll do a more topical series, something like Us For Them. We did that a few months back. Uh, as it turns out, a pretty timely series. I highly recommend you check it out. It might keep you from, you know, putting on a buffalo hat and storming the Capitol. Um, then we do some series where we just, uh, we just walk through a book of the Bible, something like Beautiful, Terrible World. We did that with the book of Job back in uh, early summer, I think it was. And then sometimes we just kind of follow the church calendar. Right? We study the same things that Christians all over the world are doing at the same time during certain seasons. Season like Advent. We just finished with that here a few weeks ago. And so all that to say, if you've ever wondered, uh, yes, there is some intention to the way we choose our series. Dave and I don't just throw ideas in the fishbowl and, you know, pull them out and see what happens. We think it's important to have that mix. And I wanted to, to kind of explain some of that just to give you a peek into the process by which we landed at our new series that we're very, very excited about. So over the holidays, I decided to do something that I, had, that I had not done in a long time. I decided that I was gonna read a fiction book. It's been a long time since I read a fiction book, so I picked out a, a classic, American classic. We got a professor, a literary professor here in the front row. He'll appreciate this one. Moby Dick, The White Whale by Herman Melville. All right, it was a perfect day for reading. It was a day like today. Cold and rainy outside, fire just crackling in the fireplace beside me, the boys playing with their new toys they just gotten for Christmas. Conditions were perfect. And yet about five minutes into reading this book, I realized that something terrible had happened. Okay, I'm serious. I realized that I had forgotten how to read. Isn't that terrible? Now, you need to understand, I don't mean that I've you know, forgotten how to make sense of letters and words and sentences. No, I mean that I've forgotten how to submit to the practice of really getting into really reading a book. Now, because I read every day. I read every single day. But most of my reading is pretty selfish, by which when I read something, I'm trying to get something out of it. You know what I mean? I'm trying to get, like, uh, you know, economic tips, marriage tips, fantasy football advice, sermon illustrations. I read in order to get stuff that is applicable to me in my life. That's why I read things. And so even though the conditions were perfect, I was finding it almost impossible to read this 170-year-old fictional tale about Captain Ahab and his obsessive search for the white whale. Because the whole time I'm mentally preoccupied, I'm asking myself these questions like, what? Well, how does any of this apply to me? You know, there are, there are no tips in here for how to be a better husband, a better dad, better pastor, preacher, better friend. There's nothing in this for me. I've forgotten how to read. By which I mean I've become so fixed in this kind of uh, self-absorbed, hurried, transactional kind of reading. Where I'm just trying to get something out of a book. I need to get something out of it make it worth my time. That I've forgotten how to submit to the process of really getting into a book. Are you with me here? Two different kinds of reading. All right, now, here's my point. I think many of us, self very much included, have become fixed in a very self-absorbed, hurried, transactional kind of living where we're just kind of walking around trying to get something out. I got to get something out of everything and every person that we encounter. 
We're walking around the world every day, and we're just asking ourselves these questions. So how does this apply to me? How is this relevant to my life? And this is especially true of our faith. Right? We read the Bible when we read it, and we tend to read it kind of selfishly. I know I do, which means we read it, and we're always asking ourselves these questions. It's like, well, how does this apply to my life? How does this Levitical code here, how does this apply to my life? How is this relevant to me? Now we go to worship or maybe to small group, and, and the whole time we're wondering, right? We're wondering what? Am I getting something out of this? I, I don't know that I'm getting anything out of this. I don't know that I'm really getting anything out of small group right now. I didn't really get anything out of worship today. We pray, and the whole time we're kind of wondering, is this working? You know, I, I don't know if this is working, and I'm only doing this thing because it's supposed to be working, right? I don't want to do it if it doesn't work. And to be fair, it's really not your fault. It's really not your fault because we preachers, in a lot of ways, we have encouraged you to approach your faith in this way. Philip Carey, he wrote a great little book called Good News for Anxious Christians. Good title. And in it, he's got a whole chapter where he scolds us preachers for spending way too much time on the application part of the sermon. Which he says is actually the most boring part of the sermon. Now, here's how he says it. He says, it's sad. Most preachers seem to think that the boring application part of the sermon is the most important part. They desire to be practical and change your life, so they feel they have to spend most of the sermon telling you what to do and talking about your life. But if your experience is like mine, you know there's nothing more boring than a sermon that's completely practical. One that's all about me and my life and what I'm supposed to do to change it. It's boring because I don't come to church to hear about myself. I come to church to hear about Jesus Christ. Amen? Mm, it's good. You got ears to hear. You need to hear this. Right, and this applies to far more than sermons. And so in order to tease this out, we're, we're going to do a little example, a little illustration. Jordan's going to come out here and... He's going to sing a song for us. I don't know if any of you are fans of uh, Leonard Cohen's classic song, Hallelujah. Any Leonard Cohen Hallelujah fans in here? Uh, just me and Carol Carroll. Okay, well, me and Carol Carroll are really going to enjoy this, maybe a couple others. Uh, but Jordan's going to play Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah for us here, and then we're going to talk about it in a second. So y'all give Jordan a hand. Let him get warmed up here on a snowy day, and then he'll take it away. David played and it pleased the Lord But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this The fourth, the fifth The minor fall and the major lift The baffled king composing hallelujah Ha 
All right, so I have a question for you. It's kind of a rhetorical question. I want you to think about it. Uh, did that, all right, what just happened? Jordan playing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Did that apply to you? Now, was that, was that, what just happened, was that relevant to your life? And, of course, the only way to answer a question like that is to say it's an incredibly stupid and irrelevant question to ask. Because who cares if it was relevant? Because it was awesome, right? Who cares if it was relevant? It was beautiful. And when you experience something that's beautiful and powerful, something that moves you, you stop asking these silly, self-absorbed questions like, how is this relevant to me? How is this relevant to my life? Bring all this full circle. 2020 was a tough year. 2021, not off to a great start, but, you know, fingers crossed, well, we'll see what happens. It was a year in which uh, all these pressing concerns really pushed down on us, and so we were forced to think about ourselves and our lives in all sorts of ways. We were forced to think about ourselves a lot. And yet, coming off of such a difficult year, perhaps what we need to do, actually, is to spend less time thinking about ourselves and our lives, we need to spend less time thinking about how we can get something out of our faith. Faith, you better give something to me. And instead, we need to spend more time thinking about how we can get into our faith. Are you with me here? Some of us need to take our hands off our faith. Get your hands off of its collar, telling it's got to give you something. I need something today, faith. Instead, you need to submit to the practice of humbly getting into your faith. And to that end, for the next 15 weeks, we want to invite you to journey with us. As we get lost in a story, it's good to get lost in a story when you've been self-absorbed. Get lost in a story that is first and foremost God's story and not your story, right? Because that's what Scripture is. It's God's story, not your story. We'd like to invite you to journey with us as we listen and get lost in the story of Jesus as told in the Gospel of Luke. Calling the series Jesus According to Luke. We'll divide it into three parts, right? Part one is kind of this origin story. Figure out who Jesus is, where he comes from. We'll start that today. Part two is this road trip story. Jesus and his band of, of merry men as they make their way to Jerusalem. We've, we've titled it after a great Willie Nelson song, On the Road Again. Part three is, uh, you know, the showdown in Jerusalem. It all kind of hits the fan there. We named it after a Bob Dylan song, The End of the Line. I highly recommend you check it out. And if you journey with us for the next 15 weeks, and I hope that you will, what I think you'll discover is that instead of sitting around wondering, asking yourself whether or not Jesus is relevant to your life, you'll be so moved by Jesus and his life that instead of sitting around asking yourself if Jesus is relevant to your life, you're going to want to make sure that your life is relevant 
to Jesus' life. Are you with me here? You want to make sure that your life is related to what Jesus has going on. Because, y'all, I'm telling you, there ain't never been nobody like Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> oh, you know, the God-man, the infinite God, the maker of space and time, walking around in space and time, touching the untouchable, forgiving the unforgivable, pouring out God's joyful justice as an appetizer, as a looming apocalypse of love and laughter. I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, Jesus Christ was lightning, and the rest of history is his thunder. Right? Echoes of a life so beautiful and so powerful that it will shake the foundations of creation until the time when there is no longer time and God is all in all. Amen? All right, so if you got your Bibles, we're going to turn to Luke 3. All right, we're going to jump in there. We kind of covered Luke 1 through 2 already over Advent and Christmas Eve. So we're going to pick it up here in Luke 3, verses 1 through 3. Then we'll jump ahead to verse 21. Be up here on the screen if you don't have your Bibles with you. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. Interesting. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so John the Baptist, he's baptizing people out in the wilderness. Verse 21. Now when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. It said, you are my beloved son. In you I am very well pleased. Now, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. All right, Luke 3, 1 through 3, 21 through 23. So in many ways, this story, the baptism of Jesus, it's the moment in the biblical story where we kind of cross this threshold, right, from old into new, right at this moment. John the Baptist, he's kind of the last of the Hebrew prophets trying to prepare the people of Israel for the new thing that God's going to do. And so when Jesus of Nazareth steps foot in the Jordan River, you know, splash, Something new has been set in motion. And this, this story, right, apart from the birth narratives where Jesus is a baby, so he doesn't really do a whole lot because he's a baby, this is really the first story that we have about Jesus doing anything. And seeing as how we all know how important first impressions are, what kind of first impression do we get from Jesus from this very first story that we have about him here? Well, we're told that he is baptized while everybody else is being baptized. You notice how Luke mentions it in just kind of a, an offhand way. He's like, while everybody else is being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Which I find very, very strange. It's just an interesting detail. I mean, think about this for a second. You're, a, you're an ancient Jewish man. Oh, I did show our paintings. Uh, the baptism of Jesus, it was depicted a lot in Christian art uh, throughout the centuries. Uh, here are a couple of different pieces. This one is from a uh, mosaic on top of a baptistry in Italy. It's about 1,500 years old. Isn't that beautiful? If any of you wants to write a check for like $100 million, we can get one of those. Uh, and then the second one is from Da Vinci. It's very famous. Uh, this is Jesus being baptized in the Jordan by John in his red Speedo, shredded. You can tell he knew he was going to get his picture painted today, and we'd all be looking at it for the rest of history. He needed to, you know, tighten it all up. Right? And so we got that going on. So I want you to imagine this. It kind of allows you to see what's going on here. You're an ancient Jewish man, and you're standing in this long line out in the wilderness waiting to be baptized by this lunatic named John the Baptist, right? But you think something's going on, so you're like, okay, I'll do it. And you've been standing in this line for a while. You know, it's a long line. And it's hot. 
and you're starting to feel a little self-conscious in your, your little red Speedo. Nobody can be confident in a Speedo for more than about 30 minutes, not even Europeans. And so you're standing there, you're starting to feel a little self-confident, and this line is taking forever. And so you get a little grumpy, and you peek up in the line, and you see if you have a friend up there that maybe you can go talk to, you know, do the old chat and cut, where you go, you chat, and then you just stay up there in line. You're thinking about it, right? You think about it. So you peek up there, and there, two people in front of you, it's Jesus. God himself is standing in this long line out in the wilderness, two people in front of you, which brings us to a very important theological question, okay? I need you to put your theological thinking caps on. If you could do it without him noticing, would you have cut Jesus in line? Now, I'll tell you, my wife, I definitely would have. If you know me, I definitely would. You can't judge me. Only God can judge me. I would have definitely cut Jesus in line. But you don't understand. It's because I'm very, very important. I don't wait in lines for anybody. I'm a very important person. My mom was my teacher in first grade. If we have any teachers in the room this morning, God bless you. I know it's been a hard year for you. You've truly done the Lord's work, and we are proud of you as a church. My mom was my teacher in first grade. There was this one day, though, where uh, my mom was out. We had a substitute. We stand in line for recess. We start lining up. And I, being the teacher's son and a bit of a recess enthusiast, I was very good at it. It was my, my very best subject in school. I cut to the front of the line, you know. And the substitute, she sees me do this. And so she says, Austin, Austin, I know you're excited about recess, but you really can't cut everybody else. And so you're going to have to come stand here in the back. To which I responded, uh, miss, whatever you substitute, miss substitute, do you know who I am? All right, Austin Fisher, can I spell that? F-I-S-C, like, like the teacher, Jane Fisher. Yeah, I'm the teacher's son. And so here's what's gonna happen, sweetheart. Um, I'm gonna stay in the front of this line and I'm gonna lead us out to recess. And in exchange for not reporting you to my mother, you're gonna stay in here during recess and you're gonna finish my homework. That's what's gonna happen. Now, needless to say, if you know my mom, then you know that as soon as she found out about this, uh, she made sure that I stood at the end of every single line for the rest of the year. She will still make me stand at the end of line sometime. Thanksgiving, I'm there in the line. She'll just send me to the back. Remember first grade son? Yes, I do, mother. All that to say, I, I don't like waiting in lines. I don't like waiting in lines for all sorts of, of reasons, but mainly because it makes me feel unimportant to wait in line. And I don't like to feel unimportant. I like to feel important because I like to think that I am, in fact, very, very important. And I'd be willing to bet that I'm not alone here, right? You don't like waiting in lines for people. You don't like standing around. You love throwing whatever kind of status or weight that you have at things that might help you cut in line. And we're all like this. It's human nature to be like that, right? We don't want to wait in lines. But then here's Jesus making his first impression and the very first story that we have about him. And it's a story about him standing in a long line out in the wilderness waiting to be baptized with everybody else. I don't know about you, but if I'm Jesus, this is not the story I choose to make my first impression. I mean, you are Jesus Christ. You can have whatever first story you wanted, man. There's a story about you turning 120 gallons of water into wine and a wedding in Kenya. You remember that one? That would have been mine. People would have been like, this guy's a good time. He's going somewhere, going to be president of his fraternity. I want to follow him around. There's a story about you calming the storm at sea. You remember that one? You just wake up, you tell the wind and wave to shut up because you're taking a nap and they need to pipe down. That's an awesome story. A story about you raising Lazarus from the dead. You raised a dead man. All of them would have been awesome stories to make a first impression. But instead of any of those, we get this. You standing in a long line out in the wilderness doing literally nothing but standing there. What are we to make of this? Why is this the first story we get from Jesus? 
Well, what sticks out to me when I read this story about Jesus, first story we really get of him, is that Jesus knew and accepted who he was. Right? Jesus knew and he accepted who he was. All right, so Jesus, you know, he's born. We discussed on Christmas Eve. It's a very unimportant birth. There are no important people there. Nobody really even notices. And then he lives in obscurity in the wilderness for 30 years. His first 30 years, he just lives out in the wilderness, man. He's not trying to climb the social ladder. He's not taking selfies with important people. He's not trying to be an Instagram influencer. Oh, I'll get that blue check. If I just get that blue check. And then when he finally decides to go public, right, his big public like coming out party, what does he do? He goes and he stands in a long line out in the middle of nowhere. That's what's going on here. Do you have any idea how humble you have to be to act like this? Do you have any idea how secure you have to be in your identity to submit to this kind of behavior? Jesus is free to humbly wait in a long line out in the wilderness because he knows and accepts who he is. And who is he? As soon as he comes up out of the Jordan River, the heavens are ripped open and God, his father, tells us who he is. What does he say? This is my beloved boy. And in him, I am very well pleased. And let's take a moment to just let this sink in a little bit. Because at this point, Jesus is like, all he's done is lived in obscurity for 30 years. And apparently done nothing of note. Isn't it crazy? Jesus lived for 30 years. We've got one story about him being lost in the temple. Nothing else could even make the Bible. 30 years of Jesus' life. That's the only, only story we get. And yet, even though he's done nothing that the world would find particularly impressive in the 30 years of his 33-year-old life, he comes out of the waters of the Jordan River and the heavens rip open and God, his Father, says, This is my beloved boy and I am delighted in him. For his first 30 years, Jesus walks the world in radical humility and obscurity, loving God and loving his neighbor, even though nobody even notices. And he's able to gladly do this because he knows who he is. He is the Father's beloved Son. And when you know, and I mean really know and accept down deep in your bones who you are, a beloved son, a beloved daughter, when you really know that, you don't really need anything else from anybody. You know what I mean? What, what else is somebody going to give you once you know that? Now, for the longest time in my life, if you had asked me what sin I struggle with the most, I would have said pride. I struggle with pride. And to be honest, and I suspect I'm speaking for a, uh, a lot of people in the room this morning. I kind of enjoyed confessing that I struggle with pride because pride's a cool sin to struggle with. You know what I mean? Like when you say you struggle with pride, you're basically saying, hey, look, I struggle being humble about how good I am at everything. It's fun to say that. I just struggle with pride. It's just so hard. I'm just so good at all this stuff. I got all these things going for me. It's just really hard to be humble about it all. And it took me a long time to understand this. It's taken me even longer to accept it. But what I was calling pride was actually insecurity. I wasn't struggling with pride, I was struggling with insecurity. And I hate that word, insecurity. Ugh, it's a weak word. I don't like the way it sounds coming out of my mouth, insecurity. But it's true. It's true. When, when you think you're too important to stand in a line, let me help you out. 
It ain't pride. It's insecurity. It's insecurity. Right? When you're always trying to outdo others, you know, puff your chest out around others, it's not pride. It's insecurity. When you're constantly judging others, looking down on others, trying to outdo others, say it with me, it's not pride. It's insecurity. So next time somebody tells you they struggle with pride, you can just go, mm-hmm, sure you do. <laughs> so hard being good at everything. I know, I know, I know. And what I'm struggling to know, even more than know except about myself, is what I think we all in some sense are struggling to know and accept about ourselves. You know, we're, we're anxious. We know we're anxious. We're greedy. And we're insecure. Why? Because we don't know who we are. We've yet to truly know and understand down deep in our bones that we are the beloved sons and daughters of the living God. And what's even more remarkable, the thing that's even more difficult to believe about all this, okay, is that we are, in fact, the beloved sons and daughters of the living God. That is who we are, but it's not because we're good enough or righteous enough or beautiful enough or successful enough or woke enough. No, we are the beloved sons and daughters of the living God because God, our Father, says so. We are the beloved sons and daughters of the living God, but it's not because we're good. It's because he's good and has laid his claim on us. That's why we're the beloved sons and daughters of the living God. Why God looks down and says, this is my beloved boy, my beloved daughter, and I am well pleased in them. So Jesus, right, he waits for 30 years to begin his public ministry. He's only going to live 33. He waits for 30 years to do this. And then he announces it to the world by going and standing in a long line out in the middle of the wilderness waiting to be baptized with everybody else. Jesus humbly walks the world as the world's servant, even though he's the world's master and maker. You ever thought about that? And he's able to gladly do this because he knows who he is. He knows he is the Father's beloved Son, which means he doesn't have anything to prove to anybody. And that, that is freedom. Freedom is not you doing whatever you want. That's child's play. That's childish freedom. Freedom is knowing and accepting who you are. And so if you want to be free, man, I know you want to be free. I want to be free. I want to be more free. If you want to be free, then maybe what you need to do um, is go stand in a very long line for a while. Long enough for God, your Father, to remind you and help you accept who you really are. A beloved son, beloved daughter, not because you're good, but because he's good, because God, your Father, said so. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for today. I'm grateful for all my friends, my new friends, my old friends who braved the snow and came here today. All those watching online too, Lord Jesus, we're grateful for all of them. And we just confess that our kind of core problem, God, is we have not known and accepted who we are. We're still under the delusion that we have to prove ourselves and be good enough, beautiful enough, successful enough, woke enough, righteous enough, whatever your drug is. You know, we're, we're all under the impression that that's how we make it in this world and that's how we get accepted. But the good news of the gospel is that we are not accepted because we are good. We are accepted because we are loved. And that is much better news 
And so I pray that in these moments here, January 10th, 2021, Temple, Texas, you would help us here at Vista Community Church to just take a moment to let that good news of the gospel sink in a little bit deeper because we never get too mature for it, too wise for it. We need it every single day. We need to hear you say, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter. I'm delighted in you, not because of what you've done, but because of who I am. Help us to receive that in these moments. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.